Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Season one of Open Deeply is about life stories. And in those stories, we crack open our outer shells and we go straight for the center of what makes us tick. Each guest is with us for two episodes, allowing us not only to zero in on the pivotal things that shape them, but also parse out how they fit, not only into our guest's big picture, but also how they weave into the common thread that connects us all. So our guest for this episode is Melina Williams. And this is our second episode with Melina. In the first, she told us her life story. And this episode gives us an opportunity to unpack and ask questions. Here's a bit more about Melina. This, quote, delicate, trembling flower of submission is a New York City born and raised writer, actress, BDSM educator, storyteller, sobriety fiend since 2007, and an award-winning executive pervert. Owned and collared by renowned contemporary composer Georg Friedrich Haas since 2013 and his wife since 2015, she serves as his beloved slave, submissive, wife, servant, and muse. Their relationship was featured in the New York Times in a groundbreaking piece, and Melina's opinion and viewpoints on kink are frequently sought after by the Times as well, and other sources like the Huffington Post, Newsweek, Essence, Ebony, etc. Melina is also a frequent guest expert on Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast, Tristan Terramino's Sex Out Loud, and Margaret Cho's Monsters of Talk podcast. Melina's been exploring kink since 1993, active in the BDSM and leather community since 96, and teaching since 98. She speaks internationally on those topics, and she's even spoken about kink at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Melina is also a leather title holder, International Miss Leather 2010 and Miss San Francisco Leather 2019. She's the co-author of Toy Bag Guide, Taboo Play, and Playing Well with Others, your guide to discovering, exploring, and navigating the kink, leather, and BDSM communities. Both of those were collaborations with fellow educator Lee Harrington. A professional stage performer since the age of five, Melina's credits include singing on the soundtrack for the movie The Wiz and starring with Danny Bonaducci in the underground cult classic America's Deadliest Home Video. Her short film, Impact, won Cinekink's Best Experimental Film Award. Melina's latest performance piece, which is a collaboration with her husband, is called Hyena, and it just won a bunch of awards too. And they're also both the subject of a documentary called The Artist and the Pervert. Melina also appeared on my show, Sex with Sunny Megatron on Showtime, in a segment on race play. 
Before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. Please know this episode has themes of taboo play within kink related to race. If this episode's content is disturbing to you, please take care of yourself. Skip this episode if need be and join us again next time. And if you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline, such as 800-273-TALK-8255. Okay, so Melina, thank you so much for coming back for a second episode. And today we thought we would ask you some questions that are kind of inspired from some of the stories that you told in the last episode. You know, some of these questions are pretty full tilt just to prepare you and the listeners. And here's the first question. Some people listening may know very little about BDSM. Sometimes BDSM is just sexy fun. But sometimes it can be healing to past personal injuries or even intergenerational injuries. Can you describe what BDSM means to you first? And if you believe BDSM has the capacity to hold personal and intergenerational wounds, can you explain why? Yeah. So BDSM, the acronym for those who don't know, the B can stand for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. So it's each letter is, is double-purposed. And the general umbrella that I use when I'm talking about, okay, what is BDSM, is the deliberate and intentional use of intense emotions, sensations, in order to fulfill a psychodrama of some sort. And so bondage, for example, is a physical application of a psychodrama. You're removing someone's privilege of movement. Dominance and submission is a more psychological aspect of it. You are deliberately and authentically and most importantly and most critically consensually relinquishing aspects of your power or all of your power or all of your autonomy or some of your autonomy, either for a moment or for a lifetime commitment, depending on where you are. And so in that aspect, I believe very strongly that BDSM can be used in ways that are definitely emotionally therapeutic. It is not, and I cannot stress this enough, and I know you have my back on this, a substitute for therapy. It is not you saying, I'm going to get a spanking and cure my phobia of being intimate with someone, right? Like, that's not how it freaking goes. However, if you are living your damn life and you are engaged in BDSM, what almost inevitably you will find is that the stuff you're doing in the dungeon or in the bedroom or with your partner sort of starts to bleed into the rest of your life in ways that are hopefully positive. It can be negative. I'm not going to make any bones about that. BDSM can fuck people up like any relationship, like any interaction. But when kinky stuff is done with intention and with consent and with clear, sober decision making, I believe that there definitely are conflicts, both internal and external and relationship shit that can really be clarified and helped using BDSM. The best example that I have for myself personally is that I tend to be a real martyr person in a relationship. I will give and give and give and give and give until I'm exhausted and broke and then give some more because I feel like that's the way I need to show people that I love them to earn my spot in the world to prove that I'm worthy of affection or attention. And that's not healthy, in my opinion. So 
what I gain from a power dynamic relationship where both of us have agreed that, yes, I am someone who is fed and thrives in that place of giving service to other people. However, I have in place something like the prime directive, which is the foundational aspect of my kink. And the prime directive states that it is the slave or submissive's primary responsibility to protect the property at all times up to and including from the owner themselves. And what that accomplishes rather elegantly is the capacity for me as a submissive to say, okay, wow, my first responsibility, the most important thing in this relationship, number one, before anything else, is that I am okay. And if I am not okay, everything grinds to a halt until either I'm okay or we figured out how I can move forward not being okay, but still protected and healthy. So for me, and the things that the prime director was something that I got in my first dominant submissive relationship, that guideline, and the idea that a power exchange dynamic had at its core the health and well-being of the submissive was revolutionary to me because I do not, I'm not a good self-care person. My self-esteem is garbage. As a recovering alcoholic, I clearly made very poor decisions up to the point where I got myself addicted to a substance and then tried valiantly to drink myself to death. The prime directive says you can't do that. The most important thing in your life and in your relationship life is that you are okay. And so I was like, okay, fine. Okay, great. But even that took me so many years to accept fully because people can tell you that, but then they can execute imperfectly, for example. So someone can tell you that the most important thing is that you're okay. And then maybe when you're not okay, maybe they don't actually prioritize you. But the seed of that idea, the fact that you are thinking, wait, but wait, but maybe shouldn't I be cared for in a way where my health and well-being is prioritized, that revolutionary idea, while it might take a while for you to actually implement it in your life successfully, you're never going to implement it if you don't have the seed there at all. And so it took me many years to sort of germinate that and let it grow. You know, it got pruned back brutally a couple of times in a couple of relationships. But where I am now is that even when shit hits the fan and I'm feeling crap, I can take a deep breath and I can say, okay, I'm feeling like shit and that's all right because my priority now is to make sure that I am doing all right. And that is a majestic side effect of my BDSM practice. And so for me, it, that alone would be enough for me to stand in front of any group of people at any point and say, this is why SM and kink and power exchange can change your life. I completely agree with that. I mean, I certainly have had times with kink, even though I kind of like to a kinky person such as you and Sunny, I'm definitely baby kink. Like to a vanilla person, I'm probably, you know, pretty more extreme, you know, but I've definitely had healing experiences in my past. I have a little bit of sexual abuse in my past and doing some kink scenes with someone I trusted that was kind of a ravishment type thing where I knew I could say red whenever I wanted. And I knew I actually had power in it, but he was kind of replicating certain things for some reason with somebody that I trusted that was loving. It just released a whole bunch of bad stuff out of my body. It's funny how it works that way, you know, but it was a very healing moment for me. It wasn't that extreme. It was just him kind of holding me down with his body weight. He knew what I needed, you know, because we had had conversations before about it. And he was just very gentle. And um, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And in some cases, it's just as simple as a brief recreation of a moment that was traumatic or difficult and you having the agency to say, stop, no. And it ends. 
And from a science perspective, the rewiring that starts to occur there is profound. And it doesn't cure anything, but it does give your body and your mind the emotional experience of a similar experience that you could control. And I think that that, and I've just seen so many people be empowered by that. It's just so amazing. When I've done scenes, for example, of racial abuse, at the end of those scenes, dropping the character of the person who was my abuser and then seeing my friends standing there, each and every time themselves also shell-shocked and sort of going, holy shit, did I just do that? And remembering that this is a human being enabled me to look at people who are racists, who are bigots and say, okay, who human being, human being, <laughs> versus what they are doing to me. Yeah, obviously, you know, as a white woman, I'm not going to pretend to be able to step in your shoes regarding that. The closest I can get to it is reenacting something with someone I trust. It's a bit of a, a rape type fantasy or what have you. And understanding how that can be healing if you are with someone kind, like you said, a friend where you're like, I trust this person. It's something that I would not have understood when I was young. Honestly, it's something that I didn't understand until I experienced it. And because there was a time when I was still in school, when I first started hanging out with people in the King community, and I was like, I was literally still getting my master's degree. And it was just like, are they recapitulating their childhood trauma? You know, and like all that kind of stuff, right? Why, yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to join? <laughs> and of course, you know, then there's these people that are like, wanting to say that, no, you're not recapitulating. But the thing is, it's like, how should I put it? Or people that say, oh, well, people that go into BDSM, they're all traumatized. Well, one... Who isn't fucking traumatized? We're all traumatized. Who doesn't have some shit that they look back on and think, wow, that really hurt me? And it's and the hurt stuck. People like to throw around the word trauma and then to be like, you're overreacting crybabes. I'm like, no, all it means is that you got fucked and you're still a little bit fucked about it. And I don't think there's anyone, I mean, who's honest. It's just a human experience. Trauma is a human reality. Like love or anger, all of those things are just part of being human. And the idea that recapitulation or the idea that acting out some aspect of yourself that's ugly is deleterious is what I have an issue with. I certainly have had people point the finger at me around issues of being an African-American woman, just doing BDSM at all. Can you pause? Deleterious? I have a pretty good vocabulary, but I have no idea what that word means. <laughs> it is something that has an active negative impact. So like not just bad, but like something that impacts your capacity to like move forward with a thing. And it's interesting. It's not people want to think in black and white terms. It's like, you know, for those of us who go into kink and have a trauma history, it's like it can provide neutral experiences, corrective experiences. And you can think you've chosen like a good dom who actually does re-traumatize you and you don't see it coming and then you have to work through that and heal it and stuff. So the the answer isn't like yes or no. It's it's complicated. Yeah, it's so complex and there's so many moving parts that you know, we want we want to make everything easy to understand things, to go, "Oh, you're reenacting this and that happens." And it's like, "No, it's all of these little elements of, you know, our past, our present, our this or that 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 are all working together. It's like you said, Kate, it, oftentimes you can't really explain it until you go through it yourself. And then you 
get it. And then you can choose more wisely. You can choose partners. You can set boundaries for yourself better as you educate and have experiences. So the second part of this, I guess you touched on it a bit about healing intergenerational wounds. It's interesting because years ago when I was first uh, thinking about doing one of these DNA tests when they first came out and I was like, yeah, I'm going to track my DNA, see what my ancestry is. And the first time I did it, there was so little information because very few African-Americans are giving up their DNA (laughs) to a faceless entity, right? We're not about that life. And then over the years, more information slowly sort of sort of gathered. And now when I look at the same report, I have a great deal more information. And what was fascinating to me was that when I finally did get my, oh gosh, what's the word? Haplogroup, which is, I know what it is, like, look it up if you don't know, because I'm like, I'm not going to try to fucking explain it. I'm not smart in that way where I can regurgitate (laughs) concepts. I'm like, I know what it is. You figure it out. But it has to do with where your genes came from originally and how long they've been hanging around and how many mutations they've had and all this other shit. So the haplogroup that I am in is the second oldest that humans carry. So what that means is that there's information in my cells that has been around since humans were like becoming human, which is nuts. And I had like an entire existential crisis about this because that's how my brain works. I was like, whoa, wait, whoa, oh my God, my brain, my body can't. Well, it's interesting because what it means to me is that I have information in my body that I don't even know that I access. I don't, I feel like DNA is, DNA is there for a fucking reason. And every year we as human beings discover more about the ordinary and boring shit around us that just blows your mind. And patterns emerge and more, you know, like shit that people thought was pseudoscience bullshit is now absolutely accepted as fact, like gut instinct, you know, like the fact that the gut literally communicates with the brain. It bypasses everything else. And the fact that little bugs in our intestines can impact our mood and our capacity to think and all these other shit. Oh, it's, it's fucking amazing. So when I think about the fact that there are elements in my body that have been programmed for millions of years and have changed and has shifted, I'm like, I must have some wisdom, something in my very cells that allows me to be who I am. And it really sort of underscores the idea that it's taken millions of years of humanity to get you to be in this body at this place at this time. And it's awe-inspiring. And it's humbling when you consider how dynamic and incredible and broad the the scope of the human experiences. And then, this is going to sound disconnected, but stick with me here. A few years ago, I was diagnosed with diabetes and I was like, oh my God, I suck. I'm a horrible person. And of course, you know, being fat, the world wants to tell you that everything is your fault. Cancer, it's your fault. Diabetes, it's your fault. Your knee hurts, it's your fault. Lose weight, it'll all be fine. And of course, this is not true. And I did all the things you're supposed to do when you're first diagnosed with diabetes. Changed my diet, lost weight, did all that shit, got my numbers down, my doctor's waving pom-poms. And then over the next, that was the first year. Over the next year, everything reversed. And I went back to where I was a little bit worse. And I'm like, I haven't changed anything that I was doing. Why isn't this working? Finally went to an endocrinologist and he sat me down and looked me in the eye and said, none of this is your fault. He said, your ancestors got through their unbelievable privations because their bodies were unbelievably efficient at hanging on to every calorie. And that served you well through dozens of generations until in an evolutionary heartbeat, suddenly you had all the food you wanted. 
and then it was not the food you should be eating because you went from privation and slavery to poverty and segregation. And your body does not know how to live in a wealthy society. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And I was like, holy shit, fucking racism. It felt freeing and also filled me with rage and sadness. And I understood so closely, I said, and you're looking at all of the diseases that disproportionately affect people of color, diabetes and heart disease and hypertension, all of these are tied back to the reality of colonialism and slavery. And to feel on the one hand that my body is carrying messaging from millions of years ago, we wouldn't even have recognized my ancestors at that point where those DNA came into play on the planet. And now where even in just 20, 25 generations, my body was adapted for me by selective breeding and slavery and starvation and all of these things to create the person who's here today is again, humbling and also filled me with this type of anger. And what I realized is that so much of who I am was programmed before I was even born. I have certainly a lot of choices and I certainly have many things that have impacted since the moment of uh, consciousness, whenever that occurs in the fetus. All of those things have been impacting me in this body, in this lifetime for over 52 years. But I cannot erase or ignore, or turn my back on the millions of years that have come behind me in order to get me to this place where I am. One of the things that kink and BDSM has done for me is enable me to access altered states, the adrenaline rush, the dopamine, and all of those chemicals that we like to sort of bundle down into a term called subspace or top space, which just refers to the sort of altered states of consciousness or highs, if you will, that people can experience when they're playing. Similar to a runner's high, you know, like people who do athletics for any duration will know that feeling, you know, or if you've been in a near-miss car accident, <laughs> you know that feeling where you're just like, and suddenly you're like ready to to like, you know, run a marathon. All of those things, all of those experiences, all of those moments have enabled me to tap into aspects of myself that my conscious skeptical brain pushes away. And BDSM strips that conscious brain down to its bare bones to the point where I'm just existing in that moment to moment to moment to moment. And I truly believe that those experiences really enable us to get down to the parts of us that we're carrying that we don't communicate with, that we don't feel, that we don't fully understand all the time. Yeah, on top of that, so you're talking about this rage that came up from that knowledge and, and that realization and that validation that that one doctor gave you. And when you think about that rage, it may be intergenerational rage. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot to carry in your body. And I'm guessing, you know, that that kink has offered all kinds of releases of that rage, all kinds of built up stuff in your body you've been able to release through kink. And, and the more therapy progresses, the more we understand that trauma is held in the body. You know, somatic psychotherapy has become bigger and bigger and bigger as we have more neuroscience backing, you know, just the truth that the body bears the burden. You know, there's actually a book called that, you know, The Body Keeps the Score is another heavy hitter by Bessel van der Kolk. You know, it's like, again, as you said, kink is not a replacement for therapy, but kink with when you choose well can provide all kinds of different releases. And it doesn't have to be because you're experiencing profound 
you don't have to play hard. You don't have to be, you know, doing this really heavy duty scene. It could be just sensation play. Some people can help you get into subspace just with the psychological words that they use, you know? I have had in my life two, three, five experiences where people just talking to me. Either I had an orgasm or had a profound psychological shift. So absolutely. I mean, like if therapy is powerful, then someone whispering in your ear can be powerful. You know, I had the distinct honor of witnessing a scene years and years ago in a dungeon where it was a man and a woman standing in a corner and this woman was standing in front of a mirror and he took her clothes off and was talking to her. You know, it was just sort of lovely because I thought, oh, they're getting ready for a scene, you know, doing a little warm up thing. And then two, three minutes later, she burst into tears. Like just, and I'm like, wow, she, I was like, this motherfucker got some skills. This bitch just fucking fell apart and he, he didn't do shit to her. And then he was holding her and then they were on the floor and they were cuddling. And then I we walked away and I, I came back a few minutes later and they were getting dressed. And I was like, I wonder what happened. And I, I ran into this woman later. She had come to one of my classes and afterwards I was chatting with her and I said, oh, I saw, I saw your scene in the dungeon, blah, blah. And she started just, you know, kind of almost like she was going to cry again. And she said, I'm glad you got to see that. And she wanted to share that her impetus for doing that scene was something that I had said years ago, because she's also a fat woman and had many of the self-esteem issues that comes along with being fat in America. And she had been playing in kink for maybe 10, 15 years at that point and refused to get naked in the dungeon. Now, for people who don't know, if you walk into a kink event, you will see people from size minus five to 48. You know, it's everybody up in there getting their freak on. And that's not to say that if you are self-conscious about your body at any size, regardless, you're just going to have that issue. And so she said that what she wanted to try, she's like, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to do it. She's like, you inspire me to try this. So the scene that I saw was the first time she had ever been naked in front of a group of people. It was the first time she had been naked with the lights on in front of her partner. And he stood her in front of the mirror and told her how beautiful she was for five minutes. And she was destroyed. she That's why she fell apart, is that she had to take it. She had to take being loved and admired. And I was like, oh, my fucking God. And I was like, can I relay the story? She's like, absolutely. Because it was so powerful to me how you have a situation where because of kink, because of the environment that we create as a scene, for better and for worse, it's it's sometimes a massive pain in the ass and it's not always great. However, we as a community created a space where this one person was able to see herself as beautiful through the eyes of her partner for the first time in her life. And that shit's fucking powerful. So you, you talked about, you know, kink for better, for worse. We're talking about a lot of better. But in, in the last episode, you told us about that incredibly traumatizing scene that you did that went horribly wrong. And you said, despite how awful it was, that it actually taught you some valuable things once you sat back and, you know, reflected on it. So, you know, it gave you insights that led to having compassion for yourself and for your mother and for your generational struggle. So talk about that. Talk about your healing journey as it relates to compassion and your racial identity from that scene. 
What was the most difficult about that scene at first was the fact that I absolutely did not want to deal with any white people at all. I was like, fuck all you guys, which, you know, understandable. I mean, I feel I feel that way on a good day now. Right. So it's like it's not even like, hey, no, thanks. So initially I thought that I had possibly done more damage to my relationship with people of pallor. I was like, this might just, I might have just like pushed myself over the edge into like full metal Louis Farrakhan, fucking, you know. But the first thing I started to realize was that I said, okay, first of all, the person who did pull me out of that scene and help me was also a white person. I was like, so they're not all bad, you know. And then my other brain is like, but he was Jewish, so it doesn't count because, like, they're, they've always been down. I was like, they've always been down. They've always been holding it down. They've always had our back. So, yeah. So I was like, yeah. but when I started to try to process for myself what had happened and what was so difficult about it, and I realized that the character that my friend was playing wasn't him. Like, there were aspects of him in it, certainly, but I had to take a deep breath and say, okay, this was a character he was playing. It's separate from the person that I know. And how can I resolve that? And the beginning of my resolution was sort of going back to the classic Broadway musical Avenue Q and their wonderful song, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, right? And it's like, we all have that in us. All of us have all of these things. We are beautiful rainbows of love and hate and adoration and revilement and all these things that are gorgeous and fucked up simultaneously. Americans are just not good at holding those things together at the same time. And so what I started to think about for myself was, is it possible that I could have compassion for someone who is hateful towards me, not for them. They don't even need to fucking know that I have compassion for them. It's not their business. This is my journey. It's my shtick. It's my responsibility. And so I started just sort of sitting and feeling with the idea that, okay, so these people are horribly racist and probably weren't born that way. And at some point, someone taught them something that they never unlearned. And the reality is there's enough racism that harms me that I have no control over. I do have control over how I react and whether or not I let the napalm of their hate sit on my skin and burn me, or if I neutralize it and let it slide off. And what the trauma of that scene enabled me to do was, at, it seemed at first negative. I was like, well, I bought that shit on myself. Like, I asked for it. Now, did I ask for where it went? I did not. However, there is a certain degree of power one gains from saying, I made a choice that got me to that place. Now, I'm in this new place due to my choice. Now, what do I do? I now have the opportunity to make another choice. And the choice that I made at that point was to try and see if there was a way for me to live on a planet with racist people and not let their racism eat me away. And what was perversely true was that doing these sorts of psychodramas where at the end I had to turn back and look in the face of the person who had just said and done these horrible things to me and give them a hug and accept like a blanket and some chocolate and some snuggles from them was really rather amazing. You know, the idea of the oppressor also being the caretaker, right? And I don't say that this is some sort of magic solution, and I don't know that there's some secret alchemy that occurs, but I do know that my capacity to not have those words spark rage within me 
certainly has grown. And it might just be something like a virgin therapy. You hear the same word 70 times in an hour is going to change your perception of it. Because any word repeated, for example, just eventually becomes nonsense. And your brain just stops understanding it as a word and it just becomes sound, which is a really hilarious exercise when you do it for theater and maybe less hilarious when it's the N-word. But I can say, honestly, a couple of years after I had done that scene, I was living in San Francisco and I was waiting for a bus. And there was a guy panhandling and he came up. He's like, hey, can you spare some change? And, you know, at the time I was broke as hell. I had maybe $3 to my name. And so I turned to the guy as the bus was pulling up and the doors open. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And he immediately, like his whole affect shifted. And he starts yelling. He says, that's just what I'd fucking expect from a fucking nigger. And the whole bus was like, because <gasps> like the doors opened, the bus driver was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, what? And I stood there. I had like one foot on the step of the bus and I just stopped dead. And like the bus driver's looking at me like, he's like, what's fitting to happen? And I turned around to this guy and I said, sir, you are not going to get very far in your chosen profession if that's your attitude. And the people on the bus were like, oh! <laughs> and he just, the dude just stood there sort of like blinking, like, you know, because of course he expected me to be mad right? As anyone would be. It would be completely acceptable for me to tell him to fuck off or any of those things. Like, no one would blame me. However, like, I just went into, like, reptile headspace. I was just like, hmm, yeah, yeah, no, you're not going to fuck with me today. The sun is shining. I'm going home. You know, no, no, thank you. And at, at like, 20 minutes after this happened, I'm sitting on the bus. I'm like, oh, my God, I was awesome. It's like, holy shit, that was bomb. I was like, I gotta write this shit down. That's amazing. And I can't say, I can't draw a line from A to B here, but I can say that those self-same experiences occurred to me previously, and that was not my reaction. I did not have the snappy comeback. I did not let it roll off my back, like genuinely let it roll off my back. And just think, you know, here's a poor individual who, you know, what, why? Why am I going to stress my brain cells for this? And having that choice, choosing to say, nah, goodbye, was something that was not available to me prior to exploring this and the door that was opened by doing these scenes and looking at the humanity of the oppressor, frankly. So I'm going to ask you another question. This is uh, turning in a different direction slightly. What would you say to a young black or brown person who's just entering the kink scene? Like, what do you feel like they should know? How would you say they can best navigate that world when they're brand spanking new? <laughs> brand spanking new. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's good. She's very good. I didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I would say is find someone who looks like you. Get a buddy who is brown, <laughs> get someone you can talk to. And it doesn't have to be a kinky person. It can be like your friend who's down, like even if they're not doing the same exploration, but someone you can talk to and share your stories with and experiences and stuff. It would be great if you can find another sort of mentor or someone you can follow or connect with who's already doing this, who is a person of color and hear their experiences firsthand and connect with them. That's the first and most important thing. The next thing is to remember I want to get this like sort of like, tattooed on my 
fucking chest and like rip up my shirt and go, the scene is a microcosm, not a utopia. Everything that happens out there happens in here. This is not a situation where the best and the brightest floated to the top and got skimmed off for your breakfast scone of awesomeness. It's everyone, you know, from the top to the bottom dregs, from nuns and priests to serial killers. You know, we have them all. So don't walk in here and let your guard down and think that you can exist as if you were in your own home. You are not. It is a collection of imperfect humans. And most of them, as I do believe, and, you know, some may think I'm a Pollyanna, but I think that most human beings actually are just trying to get by and are not looking to fuck other people over. And so when you come in with that mindset and you know that most people are not trying to fuck you over, some people will. And even then, most of those people are not trying to fuck you over. They just stepped on your foot because they were awkward or clumsy or it was just time for you to learn a lesson about foot stomping that day. And so, you know, those are the two critical pieces of advice that I would give to anyone coming into the community is to find someone who looks like you, who knows what the journey is, you know, who's been there even just like a couple seconds longer than you. Or if that's not feasible, have a friend that you can bounce your ideas off of, someone who's cool and kink accepting and can hear what you have to say. Keep your dukes up. This is not about you relaxing into a warm bath. This is about you exploring. You know, if you were going to climb Mount Everest, you wouldn't be like, yeah, what a chill, what a chill moment. I'm just going to relax and, you know, climb. no, you got to have your gear together. You got to have your Sherpas ready. You got to have your shit. You got to be trained. You got to be on point for that. And so it's the same thing with the scene. And if you come in and you're prepared to act like a grown up, you have a much better chance of not getting weed whacked and shoot up and spit out. Let's flip that. What would you say then to white kinksters, you know, not only about their responsibility to make sure that the community is inclusive, but especially their responsibility related to addressing racism within the scene? What would you tell those folks? Yeah, I would say, first of all, shut up and fucking listen and stop being so goddamn defensive about every motherfucking thing. For the love of Mike, stop talking. Stop talking. And when we say to you, please stop talking, actually stop talking. <laughs> like, don't talk about how you're about to stop talking, you know, or how awesome you are because you because you listened once. Because we are here and present and perpetually rolled over. Also, we are not a fucking monolith. There is no one way to be Black. I tell this to people all the time, like, just because I do a thing doesn't mean anyone else wants to do a thing. Don't make these assumptions. And generally, I have found that most folks get that. But of course, there are people who do not. And so being quiet and listening and understanding that every person of color has their own unique experience and flavor. I mean, I have had so many horrible experiences with law enforcement that I am deeply traumatized. And yet I was in a situation with another woman of color who uh, we were both in a car, got pulled over by the police. I start having, you know, a panic attack and she's laughing with the cop. And then afterwards, she's like, are you okay? And I was like, <laughs> you know, and she said to me, she goes, she's like, I don't have that history. She's like, I just, I'm, she's just like, I, I'm like one of these weird kids 
who managed to, you know, she she also is mixed race. So while she absolutely reads as African-American, she did have a white parent. And so, you know, that may have had some influence on the growing up. I don't know. But once you're an adult, your parents aren't there to protect you. She just happens to have been lucky. And so, you know, for example, to assume all black people are like, you know, fuck the police. Not true. There's plenty of black people who are like, oh, my uncle's a cop. So, you know, understand that all of us have our own individual stories. And if you try to say like, oh, the black kinky people, it's like, no, no, we're not a unit. We haven't all come together for some sort of convocation and decided on what blackness and BDSM means. And in fact, there's plenty of fractures and fissures and and separations within the the communities of color that are kinky and living the alt sex lifestyle. Like so many different points of view, and it's it's difficult to navigate. So this is why I tell white people, shh, 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 listen, listen to what the people are saying, and then keep listening, and then don't say anything. Like just see what it's like to just not have your opinion be needed. All right. So so the next question is probably the heaviest question. And I just want to let you know, this question came, was inspired from having a conversation with another Black woman who was saying her opinion of Black women, you know, being in the BDSM scene and sometimes playing with white men. So that's where this question came from. I'm kind of paraphrasing her. So, you know, going back again, in the first episode, you mentioned that often black male doms were were playing with white subs and that was part of what contributed to you ending up with white doms. So if a black woman were to come up to you a few weeks after that episode where you spoke on that airs and were to say to you, you know, hearing you talk as a black woman about being with white male doms hurts me. It's triggering for me. And you're hurting our people by publicly speaking out about this because you might embolden white racists. They may look at you as an example and think that we enjoy being enslaved by white men. What you do behind closed doors is your business, but speaking out in public is doing damage to our people. What would you say to her? I would say that I understand that it's difficult for her. I understand that it is triggering for her. I understand that there are many people who share her opinion. And I also understand that there are many people who are alone and struggling with feelings that drive them into even more profound isolation and self-hatred because their sexual fantasies are something that is not acceptable to them. And I would ask her, would she prefer that those people sit alone thinking, I'm sick, I'm fucked up, and no one's ever going to love me, and my desires are wrong and terrible and bad and punishing themselves? Or would she prefer that someone stands up and takes the hit and says, I understand this is hard and this is ugly, and I'm speaking to the people who do need this messaging? It's not everyone, but the number of brown women who have come up to me in the past 20 some odd years, 23 years, and said, thank you so much for talking about this. I thought I was the only one. This is for them. And life is triggering. Being Black in America is triggering. And I promise you, I promise you that there is no white person who never had the thought of being a racist or never had the thought of fantasizing about race play 
And I planted the idea in their head and suddenly they turned and decided to become bigoted, racist, prejudiced, or acting out on their offensive fantasies because those certainly have been present previously, certainly. And talking about a difficult topic, I've never seen any science or any proof or any empirical evidence or otherwise that says that an idea is planted out of nowhere in someone's head and then they act on it suddenly. Does it happen? Probably. But the vanishingly small percentage of those people is so far outweighed by the people who are helped by knowing that they're not alone. And I would say to that person, I don't know if you understand what it's like to think in your head that you are a fucking monster because of your sexual fantasies, that you actually are bringing shame to your ancestors because of what you jerk off to. And until she can look me in the eye and tell me that she knows what that feels like and the fact that I can maybe save someone from years of self-hatred, I'll take the hit. And I hope that she will understand that while it sucks for her, it's important and potentially emotionally life-saving for someone else. That's what I would say. So, you know, along those lines, there may be folks that are like, okay, you know, there are, if you are engaging in these scenes, you know, there's going to be a white male dominant. So, yeah, well, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Because race play isn't always, but let's say, you know, what about that white, male dominant who is either subconsciously drawn to race play, you know, for their racist inklings that maybe they're not aware of, or maybe they're purposely, they are racist, they know they're racist, and they're using these things to enact that. What would you say to that? Yes, and that's bad. I'm not being flippant, but really, like, people are capable of so much fuckery and the reality is, whether or not I speak about it, whether or not we discuss it, that shit is going to happen, right? And my advice to people when they do start talking about exploring race play is, I tell them, if you are a person who is in the typical role of oppressor, and you are seeking to explore that dynamic on the body of a person who's living in a skin that is currently open for higher levels of oppression than other types of skin, maybe shut the fuck up about it. You can have your fantasy and jerk off, but the degree of trauma that you could cause by approaching someone out of the blue with this is so devastating and so terrible. And I tell white people, I'm like, D you don't go around asking people for this shit. I was like, seriously, like if you know someone who's into it and a person of color, you can say, I'd like to talk to you about that. I'm curious about that. See where they're coming from with it. And I tell them, I said, if you meet someone and they are coming on to you with that, and it feels at all uncomfortable to you, it could very well be that it's that prickly gut instinct, right? Like, you know, we we're talking earlier about the DNA that we have and the reality of living in a brown body. You know when it's funky. Over and over again, I talk to people and I'm like, you know when that person is coming at you wrong. You know when they're out of pocket. You know when they're off the chain. You know it, don't you? And everyone's like, yeah. And I'm like, listen to that. Listen to that funkiness. I have had two experiences. I had one experience where a guy did come up to me and he was like, oh, Mo Williams, so glad to meet you. And, you know, it was like, I'm really interested. But I mean, I'm playing with you. You're so amazing, whatever else. And I'm like, 
well, let's talk about it. And then it leaned into, you know, his his handle on the King social media sites was something like white master for black slave. And I was like, okay, that's a, and I said, that's a strong choice. You clearly know what you want. Like trying to give the benefit of the doubt, right? Because many people have handles that are about their fantasy life. And so I wasn't going to assume, you know, that this was, that this guy was coming at this incorrectly. And so we were chatting and about 20 minutes into the conversation, I just started, my skin just started crawling. And I was like, you know, and then I sort of wrapped it up and dipped out. And I was like, yeah, that was just his eagerness. His eagerness put me off. And I say that because I actually have quite a bit of experience negotiating scenes that are deliberately playing with race. And of the five or six people I have played with, the two who were non-white were the only two who were like, hell yeah, oh, fuck yeah, I'm on it, bitch, I'm gonna fuck you up, right? Or some variation on that theme. The white people were like, oh, wow, I'm so honored. Okay, let me think about it. You know, like they literally were stopped in their tracks and had to like sit and consider. And my negotiations with them took quite a bit of work. And that's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. And so the people who are like slavering and, e and, and eager and in your face and, and rubbing their hands together, those are the ones typically to avoid. And for the pale folks who are like, yeah, I really kind of want to do this, but like, how am I supposed to do it? Like, if I can't ask people, I'm like, exactly. If you're meant to do it, the situation will present itself to you. That is 100% my feeling on that. If you have people of color in your life and they are playing in that arena and you can ask them about it, that's great. If you are attending, for example, classes or gatherings where the topic is being discovered, that might be a good place to have a, a more, slightly more neutral place to ask your questions. I say slightly more neutral because <laughs> the I've heard of a couple of classes on race play that were not exactly what I would call helpful or balanced. So there's a lot of that starting to happen now. And I'm like, are y'all going to fucking make a bitch come out of semi-retirement on this topic? Because <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, uh, I don't want to talk about it. It's not that I don't want to talk about it, but I'm like, I've written all these things. Go read them. Like, I just like, I don't want to sit in front of you. But, you know, when I hear about someone conducting a class on playing with race and the whole thing basically is like why white people are terrible for wanting to do it with almost no addressing of why an African-American person might want to do it because they themselves didn't get it. I was like, why are you even teaching this fucking class? Why? Why? So that does make me sort of take a deep breath and go, whew. But the reality is I have been around for a long time and I have yet to see you know, hordes of slavering Caucasians looking to oppress us. There are individual assholes out there, but by and large, that's not the issue you're going to run up against. What is the issue that you usually run into? Is that it's hard to find people who actually want to engage in that type of scene. It's actually the opposite. It's actually tough to find folks who are like, yes, I'll do that with you, for you. I'm not sad about that, but the thing is that if that is your kind of play, finding someone who, because first of all, there has to be some sort of trust and attraction, right? Like it doesn't need to be a physical attraction, but you need to at least be attracted to that person's skill set. There has to be some kind of attraction. So you have to have mutual attraction and then you have, that person has to have the skill set and then they have to want to do it. And then they have to want to follow through on all that is entailed by engaging in this type of scene, which is a higher degree of aftercare and personal responsibility than the average scene. 
And so when you stack all those things on top of each other, there are plenty of kinky people who were like, hoo hoo, no, I just want to like, you know, meet, beat and skeet. Like that's all they need. Right. And they don't, I got to write that down. I don't think I've ever said that before. That was good. Here's the thing. I believe that everything that you do that's consensual, that everyone is on the same page with is fine. It's just finding the people who are on that page and trusting them and not getting that creepy feeling and having them be present and want to do the thing. And here's the thing. like, And then it also becomes about people having concerns about their reputation. I had one friend I wanted to do a demo with, and their partner was uncomfortable with me doing that scene. So they didn't do it because their partner was like, I like Mo, but I don't want people, I don't want you to be seen as a person who did this fucked up scene with Mo. And I was like, oh, well. Too bad, because wealth and fame awaited you on the other side. So so from here on out, we're kind of skewing towards, you know, easier, happier questions. So, you know, you just started your own podcast. That's so exciting. And we'd love to hear about it. And I'm hoping you can tell us about it. Well, it is called All That and Mo, because, you know, I'm Mo. It's my, my name. It's funny because for so long, people were like, do an SM podcast, do a King podcast. And I was like, mm, sure, but what if I want to talk about my sobriety? Like, what if I want to talk about, you know, this recipe? What if I want to talk about this opera I'm writing? Then it becomes off topic. And I had a friend of mine, and I got to send a shout out to my friend Rami, because they had been harassing me for years about doing a podcast. And they were like, I don't care what it is, just fucking do a podcast. Just sit down and talk and fucking record it. And I was like, no, no one cares. Nobody cares, which is not true, of course, but you know, low self-esteem, I has it. So what I finally decided, I was sort of gonna Seinfeld it and just be like, you know what, it's about everything. It's about me and therefore it's about my life. And so since it's sort of me-centric, Hence all that and Mo. It's like, I'm going to talk about what the fuck I want to talk about. The first episode actually focuses on the Prime Directive because I feel it to be so foundational and because I really wanted folks to have an example of something that I took from the kink world that non-kink people can benefit from. And I've already received three email messages from people who are not kinky who are like, oh my God, that is so useful. What a great tool. Thank you. And I was like, "Ah, yes, this is what I want. So my podcast is going to be about me talking about shit about which I give a shit. And then someone was like, well, you're going to have guests on your show? I was like, ah, well, you know. And so I decided that I would have guests. But the role of guests on the show is that they have to come on and they have to interview me. So they can work in any sort of plug they want about whatever the fuck they're doing, because really isn't that why most people go on podcasts? I just go on podcasts because I want to talk, because I'm just like, you want me to talk about shit? Woo, awesome. And I previously didn't have anything to plug, really. I was like, uh, you could read my tweets, I guess. But now I can say, yeah, no, sure. Come on my podcast. You can talk about your book or your podcast or, you know, your show you're doing, but it has to be in a format where you interview me about how awesome I am. So you are all cordially invited to come and interview me on my podcast. Okay. I'm down. I will do it. And I just have to say, you saying that you already received three emails at the time of taping this, what has your podcast been out for 24 hours only? Like it just dropped. So that's pretty good. So by the time people hear this, there'll be lots of episodes, but good job. Thank you so much. And real quick, Kate, I want to know. What are some of your proudest or happiest moments related to kink or even just related to your larger life in general? And also, 
if your dad, you know, you talked about your dad is like you in so many ways. If he could see your life right now and everything that you're doing, what would he say? He'd be horrified. He, last I knew, when I was a very small child, he was a hippie musician. He then discovered Jesus and became super hella Christian. And, uh, you know, the day I remember he, we had, he had this uh, huge blue glass, blown glass peace sign that was hanging in my parents' bedroom that I loved. I fucking loved that thing in a way that a child loves a thing that they can't touch. And one day my father came home and wrapped it in a pillow and smashed it and threw it away. And he said it was because the peace sign was actually a broken cross, a symbol of the devil. And now we're Christian. And here's the thing. My mom was Christian, but she was like a normal ass Baptist, right? Like it was, <laughs> there was nothing crazy about it. Like we would go to church and it would be whatever. But then my dad got super conservative Christian and started taking us to the Salvation Army, for example. Like I was a junior soldier for years. And SA was not where I needed to be as a kid who was trying desperately to, to feel Jesus or God and never did. Fast forward two years later when he converted to Islam and, of course, like radical Islam, not like regular ass Islam, because God forbid he should just be like a regular Muslim. No, 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 no. He's got to be one of these like, you know, in on the jihad against Salman Rushdie, for example. He was like ready to cut Salman Rushdie's throat if he saw him on the street in Manhattan. He was just like, nope, he needs to die for his heresy. And when I left New York, I moved to California with my then boyfriend, Jack, who hilariously and coincidentally is the director of my film version of Hyena, because it's nice to have an ex-boyfriend who's a film director and professor. And Jack and I went to say goodbye to my dad just sort of as a formality, because, you know, at the time I was like, I don't know if I'll see you again. So let's say goodbye. And Jack, who is uh, half Jewish and half Cuban, but Reeds is pretty white. My father was polite. And then as we were parting ways, he said, well, I can't approve the fact that you're living in sin with a white devil, but I hope that you thrive anyway. And I was like, okay, thanks, dad. Bye. <laughs> we went on the corner and literally sat on a stoop screaming for like 20 minutes laughing. I was like, oh my God, what the fuck? And Jack was like, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> He's like, I've just been called a white devil. He's like, you aspire to that shit. You know, so we were we, we were laughing, right? Like, we're like, you know, in our 20s. And we're just like full of beans and ready to take on the world. Rah. And so if he is still in that line of work, <laughs> he would absolutely not. Which is sad because he is such an amazing talent and would probably be so... My husband and slash owner would love to meet and talk to my father. He's like, everything I know about your father just sounds so incredible and so amazing. And I'm like, yeah, well, I don't think he'd like you very much. <laughs> so, yeah, sadly, I don't think unless there has been yet another sea change for him. I don't think that would be the case. And actually, I'm trying to find him right now. I have a, a PI looking for him and he doesn't seem to want to be found. We can't figure out. We don't think he's dead. There's been no death record. But yeah, we're, I'm not even sure where he is. So, yeah. Anyway, there was another part to the question. Oh, your proudest or happiest moments? In kink stuff? In kink or just life in general? Like, what are you most proud of when you, you know, look back at the vantage point of now at what you've accomplished, what you've been through? Right now, the thing that sticks out for me the most is being able to create the solo show Hyena, which is about my alcoholism and my recovery. And 
the reason for that is it is the most stunning example I have in my life or even in other people's lives. Like when I look around me, I'm like, oh, this is badass and unusual, is taking literally the worst aspect of your life, the worst time in your life, the absolute no questions asked, shittiest moment in your life to date, and making that art. And making that art that plays in California, New York, England, Austria, the UK, Russia. Like, there's nowhere on the planet that I have performed this so far where people haven't been touched by it. Melina is about to mention a time that she was suicidal. Remember, the most courageous thing that you can do if you are suicidal is to get help, which can be done by calling 800-273-8255. And what is stunning to me is that I went from feeling like an absolute useless piece of human garbage who was too cowardly to even kill themselves which would be the bravest thing to do at that point, to saying, okay, not only did I survive that, but I'm gonna fucking tell people about it. And things that I never ever thought I would speak about because they were too shameful or too unbelievable are now on film, are now being spoken in words on stage in front of strangers. And to add to that, on top of that, with music written by one of the most, you know, prolific and well-respected contemporary composers of this century and the last, who just happens to be my owner and whose collar I just happen to be wearing. Like, that's nuts. That is nuts. Coming from like a bed-pissing alcoholic who was like, just kill yourself, just kill yourself, you piece of shit, to, you know, having strangers in Russia hug me and in broken English tell me how beautiful and amazing they think I am. That's some shit right there. And tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but did I just read somewhere that not only is the film Hyena at some important film festival, you got nominated for like best actress? Did I imagine, did I dream this? This happened, right? That is a film festival that is in Moscow, in fact, interestingly. And we actually just got word yesterday breaking news because we haven't we haven't spoken about it yet but by the time this comes out i'm sure we'll have more information that it was actually just selected for another festival i don't even know where that one is but it just got another festival nod so we now have two festivals that it has been accepted into so which is kind of amazing because we've we've applied to a bunch of festivals and of the ones that have already kicked over into notifications we're two for three if somebody listening wants to see Hyena, how would they go about seeing it? They have to wait. It's a, we're waiting to get a festival debut because it's sort of part of like the, the process for this. Once that happens and once we can get some sort of distribution deal, it'll definitely be available on streaming platforms just because that's an easy way to do it. We might do a per sale website. I'm just not sure. So right now it's not a thing that you can see. However, if you go to melina.com, on my website, there is an audio track of a performance from Vienna, I believe. So you can hear it. You can hear it with the music and it's a lovely recording. 
So this is our, our final couple of questions, and I think you already may halfway answered it. You mentioned in the previous episode that your life is more than amazing now. And I was just wondering if you can tell us about it and what the future holds. The amazing part is that since I'm a kid, I knew I was going to be an actor. When I was three, my father took us to see the revival of the original cast of Hair, which is wildly inappropriate for a three-year-old. <laughs> And I remember at the end, you know, my father holding me up and because everyone has started standing up and, and dancing and singing and is let the sun shine. And of course, you know, they're running around naked, buck naked, covered in paint and feathers and sparkly shit and singing. And I just like even now as I'm saying, I can feel like how my body opens up to that memory. And when we were leaving the theater, I told my parents, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do I'm going to sing and dance. I'm going to be an actor. And they were like, yes, yes, patting my head. Well, of course, because it's me, four years later, I actually was a member of SAG and AFTRA and had an, an agent and was, you know, going out there auditioning, landing roles and doing the shit. So that has always been my shtick. So this is what I saw my path as. And the reality is I was like on that track forever. I mean, I was admitted to NYU theater school by I think December of my junior year. I got in early. I went in early. Well, so like second half of my junior year and my senior year were me just coasting because I was already in theater school. And then those dreams and my ambition were thwacked because Ronald Reagan cut the affirmative action programs that were funding my scholarships. So I could not finish school at NYU. However, because I'm fucking me, I landed a job immediately at the New York Shakespeare Festival working for the subscription department. And so I was, you know, still in the thick of it, you know, still able to have the freedom to do the art that I wanted to do. But acting and being an, a performer of that nature was always where I saw myself going until I didn't, you know, I, but I did theater for my entire life. And then when I entered into this relationship with my owner and husband, I was like, there is no room for me to do that. The traditional four weeks of rehearsal, two weeks of performance or whatever else doesn't work when half the year you are on the fucking road to Europe or, you know, South America or Australia or fucking wherever the hell we're going for various concerts and such. And so for the first year and a half of our relationship, I had no artistic outlet except for occasionally going on like a storytelling podcast here and there. And at that point, I had accepted and understood the fact that maybe storytelling was more along the lines of what I was called to do. I had done a couple of solo shows and I'd really gotten that a taste for that, but I didn't see how it was a sustainable, ongoing career choice for a performer. I was like, I don't know how you, like, how do you, what? So once I was with Georg, it actually took him a year before he listened to any of my work because, and this is hilarious, he was afraid that I might not be good. And he was stressing that this woman that he like fell in love with immediately maybe could be a shitty actor. And then he has to like deal with that reality. So he just was like, I'm just going to ignore that. And we're just going to be in love and it's going to be okay. Now contrast that with, I'm not even going on a first date with this motherfucker until I have heard his shit. And so I listened to like a bunch of his pieces after he contacted me on OkCupid and was like, this shit is nuts. What the fuck is he doing? I was like, some of this I don't quite get, but it's obvious that this is some passionate and fascinating shit. All right, he gets the first date. Fine, great. And if I had not had any connection with it, I would have written back and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, 
you're weird and you suck and I can't go on a date with you. <laughs> I would have probably put it more politely because I am very nice online generally. But yeah, there was no way. There was no way. And so his first reaction, because of course, you know, white men do need to make it about themselves, is that he's going to write music for it. He goes, I won't write music. I'll write music for your... And I was like, okay. You know, in your circle, you are more famous than I am. So maybe that means I'll get a gig. Good, Yay me. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And then, of course, we had to go through the, oh, God, here's another composer dragging his no-talent wife into his career and trying to, you know, whatever. Until, of course, I got up there and then people were like, whoop, okay, no, she's got chops. And I'm like, thank you, fuckers. And so that parlayed into folks saying, well, you know, Hyena's really good, but like, what happens after? And then I was like, oh, right, there's more to this story. So now Hyena is a triptych. There will be three shows that tell the full arc of this story as a result of that writing and our collaboration, and also as a result of my constant bitching about the state of opera and how horrible and racist and gross it is, sort of started uh, pushing me to write my own opera. And I was like, fine. So I did. And I have a, an opera script that I have written. We actually had a commission for it. And then the commissioner got really ugly. And so we no longer have a commissioner for it, but that's okay. Deep breath. The opera world is a horrible, horrible place. Did I mention that? But the reality is my husband is now composing the opera that I wrote. And I have, you know, people waiting to book the next two version iterations of Hyena and a film version of Hyena coming out. And all of those are things that as an actor are bloody amazing and not anything I would have seen or predicted for myself. And that's what amazes me is that I knew, I knew when I was a kid what I was going to do, but what I didn't know and I thought I knew was how I was going to do it and when I was going to do it. I love this new wave with opera. I think in New York, there was just a release of a Black composer. Yes, Fire Up In My Bones, which is the first time in 1.3 centuries that the Metropolitan Opera has had an opera composed by a Black man. So huge. So one of my best friends is Babatunde Akinboboye. I don't know if you are know him, hip-hop opera star. I do not know him personally, but I know of him, yes. Yeah, and he's constantly talking about that. And he's always fighting to break down the racism in the opera world and build a new. Oh, my God. I should have him on my podcast. I'll be like, come on my podcast. You guys need to know each other. Dude, put us in touch. I'm down for that. Okay, absolutely. I will. And I'll be like, I'm bringing on my old white man husband. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing about him is that, like, basically, if you push a button, he's like, I apologize for white people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think Baba Tunde is thinking about doing a podcast, too. So maybe you guys can trade. Oh, my God. Awesome. Well, you know, <laughs> Melina, I am so grateful that you came on the podcast. And to me, you know, when you think about Carl Jung and the idea of the shadow self, you know, Carl Jung talks about the importance of dancing with your shadow self, you know, instead of avoiding it and putting it in a little box. If you dance with your shadow self, you're more likely to work through things and reach your human potential. And I've seen in my private practice, the people that put their sexuality in a box and keep it hidden, that's when it gets twisted, distorted, and harmful to self and others. It's when we dance with our shadow self that 
we can have input from other people. We can start to sort out things ourselves and we can reach our human potential and become more healthy. And so you embody, your just whole life journey embodies this dance with the shadow self. And you've been able to share that and listeners can decide what they want to take and what they want to toss, but they can learn so much from this brave journey that you've taken. And you talk about how you don't have self-esteem, but to me, every word that comes out of your mouth, you just sound like freaking royalty. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you join us again when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell. <laughs>